Hey everybody, welcome to lecture two of week two, making it lecture four. It is day 28 on the self-quarantine count-up. That's two full weeks of self-quarantine and, uh, I don't excuse me, four full weeks of self-quarantine. We're in week two of the course. Uh, hope everybody's staying sane. Uh, that's <laughs> kind of willed it down to, to that. Definitely healthy, of course, but sane. Uh, <clears throat> today is the second lecture on political liberalism and we're going to talk about human rights. Uh, I want to kind of get a running start into this by talking about what the foundations of uh, political liberalism that have already been laid. Uh, clearly there are certain principles that are at the heart of a liberal approach to establishing a political system. The foundation the, the sort of center, I guess maybe, I don't know if the foundation so much is the centerpiece, whatever, whatever term you want to use, uh, it all begins with the rational, sovereign, rights-holding individual. That's the core of what political liberalism builds onto. And as we saw last time, there are certain conclusions that can be drawn from this as the starting point. There it is, that's the term, not foundation, not centerpiece. This is the starting point for uh, the way that uh, liberalism builds a political philosophy. And as we saw last time, the first question that this raises is how can government be how can government be legitimate uh, because we're starting actually with a place where there is no government in terms of at least conceptually right not historically uh, clearly there have been governments since well before political liberalism begins uh, building its political philosophy but conceptually we start with no government how can government be legitimate and uh, we saw that the pathway to legitimacy is through rational consent. And consent of the governed is one of the key pieces of uh, liberal political order. Uh, there are other ones. Uh, the rule of law, which arises from this, one of the things that Locke talks about is the, uh, is the is partiality as as one of the problems in the state of nature. Nature and so the rational uh, consent has to include a partial government. Um, and what the rule of law brings along with it is uh, um, a, a sense of legal equality also. So these two things kind of together get get that impartiality piece. Uh, there's also uh, the concept, and this comes through more strongly in Locke, but it's, it's implied in Rawls as well, and I don't think I developed this idea in, in the uh, last lecture about Rawls, but there's also uh, the idea of limited government. Now, for uh, Locke, the limitation, I think, is a lot more narrow than it is for Rawls, um, because for Rawls, what he sees the uh, government doing is being the agent that distributes primary social goods, or at least that decides on principles for the distribution of primary social goods. And so there is a, a larger domain of legitimate government action for Rawls, but 
there still are significant limits, particularly when we're talking about the first principle of justice, the equal liberty principle. Uh, there, that does really limit, and especially because that principle is prior to the other two principles, uh, that principle limits the government to uh, certain kinds of activities. But because wealth and income are among the things that are being distributed, the limitation is going to be less confining than it is uh, in Locke's view. But whether you're a libertarian, a Locke-leaning libertarian, or whether you're a social uh, democrat of the raw stripe, both of those uh, um, views, which see this the legitimate scope of government action uh, differently, are do have as a key piece limited government, um, <clears throat> and that is a I, I think a really important thing to remember is that uh, we're not looking at a kind of any kind of political theory here that says well the government can take on all kinds of roles. There are plenty of political uh, philosophies that give either expansive or unlimited roles to the government. And we will, one of the things we will look at when we look at the critics, uh, we will look at at least a couple of different views on uh, an expanded role. Certainly uh, the fascism, uh, when we get to the Mussolini reading and talk about the fascist critique of uh, liberalism, we're gonna see that uh, from Mussolini's perspective, uh, a limited government is actually a kind of a betrayal of the way things are supposed to be. Uh, so this is a, this, while there's going to be disagreement within the liberal family of ideas about what the limitations are, what are the boundaries that the government can't transgress, there's definitely an agreement that there are boundaries, and there's an agreement that those boundaries have to refer back to the rational, sovereign, rights-holding individual. Uh, now, for Rawls, again, the rights-holding part comes not because we come into the world rights-holding, so I should probably bracket this, but rights are so central to who we are as individuals even though they are social goods and not individual possessions in Rawls's view, they are still social goods that are desired by and good for all individuals. And it wouldn't be rational to not want an, as expansive of a set of those rights as possible. So Rawls sees rights as something that, that society produces and protects, but they do so, society does so because these things are so important to individuals. Um, uh, there are some other concepts that haven't been developed uh, by Locke and Rawls, uh, or at least in my lecture of Locke and Rawls, that are also key to political liberalism. And a big one is, of course, political equality. And this also connects with the, the issue of impartiality. It also connects with the issue of like what, what the abstractly singular rationality will tell you. It doesn't make any sense to rational individuals to create a political order in which everybody is not equal in the eyes of the political system. The same way it doesn't make sense to create a legal system where you're not equal in, in the eyes of the law. So equality is, uh, a, it's, it's essentially a product of our rationality. Um, we are in certain ways, we are clearly not equal and liberals are not going to say that all people are created the same, right? We have different talents, we have different predilections, we have different ideas about what would make uh, for a good life. And in fact, a big part of our sovereignty as individuals is the ability to rule ourselves. And part of ruling yourself is deciding what it is that you're doing with your life, right? There's not a, there's no single notion that a good life is this, right? There are, again, other political philosophies that uh, posit there's a 
uh, a, the good life points in a particular direction, and the job of the political system is to cultivate people moving in that direction. Um, so, uh, like you know, the ancient Greeks, uh, for the ancient Greeks, for many of them, for both Aristotle and Plato, virtue was the good life. And, uh, or it was the thing that a good life should be pointed towards. So in the ancient Greek political philosophy, and Aristotle and Plato had different views on uh, a number of different features of what the right political system should be, but they agreed that there was something that the political system should be cultivating and moving people in the direction of. Sovereignty means that we rule ourselves, and that means that we decide what our goals are. Uh, to use the language I've used before, we choose our own conception of the good with a capital G. What is good? Happiness, uh, pleasure, service to others, spiritual unity with the universe, whatever it happens to be, right? I, I keep using a slightly different set of uh, concepts, and there's, there's, there's more, right? Those are just kind of, in my mind, those are the, those are the big ones, mostly because those are the ones that I've run through in my own life as, well, what am I oriented towards? Uh, but... Uh, the idea of uh, equality is not that we are equal in our talents, our uh, predilections, our physical uh, abilities, any of that stuff. We're, in fact, that is not the case. We're not equal. And we're not even equal in what we're shooting for. Um, but it wouldn't be rational for any sovereign to turn over their, like, or to agree to a system where they don't have equal rights and an equal place in the legal system. Um, there are two other concepts that are central to the uh, political liberal set of ideas, family of ideas, uh, and those are um, popular sovereignty, which is a fancy name for democracy, or it's actually what it is, is it's a really good way of um, making it clear what democracy really is. Democracy literally is rule of the people, and popular sovereignty means the people have the power to make rules for themselves. Now, notice the connection between individual sovereignty and popular sovereignty, and part of that connection is that, okay, we know it's rational to create some kind of system of government. Whether your locker rolls and you have different ideas about how we get there or what the boundaries of that government are, it is definitely a rational thing. There's, there's uh, it takes a lot of uh, different uh, premises than any of the liberals will adopt to have uh, the anarchist view, which is that actually individuals are harmed by the creation of a political system. Uh, and we'll, I'm not sure, we don't read any anarchists, but we'll, I'll talk about anarchist ideas as we move forward. But uh, to, uh, to Locke and Rawls and every other liberal, the political system serves the individual and it's rational for the individual to create the system that is going to then have the actual power to make the rules that, and then enforce the rules, uh, it will provide us with clarity as to what are our rights. It'll provide those kinds of boundaries, and I'm going to talk a little bit today about, uh, about that. But if that's going to be the case, it also doesn't make sense to the rational sovereign individual to let someone else set up those rules. Popular sovereignty is how individuals, rational individuals, say, well, my, my sovereignty doesn't end just because I know I can't go it alone, right? Um, my sovereignty continues on into the political system, and so uh, the, the rules that are created that will help define and enforce our rights, which is an essential component of, of a political uh, liberalism, uh, everybody has to have a, a, a role in, in, that, in saying that. And this is where political equality connects with popular sovereignty, because, again, it also doesn't make sense to say, well, I have a voice in that, but some people's voice is more important than my voice. There's no rational reason to say that 
someone else should have more political rights than I do. Even though, again, with equality, there are differences in wisdom, information, critical thinking, personal experience, upbringing, that will make some people more adept at the difficult art of making rules and deciding on an administrative apparatus that's going to enforce those rules as effectively and efficiently as possible. Not everybody is going to play an equal role in the political system. Um, but there's no reason to, to think that we shouldn't all have an equal voice. And so what political equality is, is not equality of role, it's equality of voice. And legal equality, same thing, it's being treated the same as any others, but that uh, treatment is going to result in differential treatment, right? If somebody violates someone else's rights, they're going to be punished. If another person doesn't violate anybody's rights, they're not going to be punished. So we're going to get differential treatment. So equality doesn't mean sameness. Uh, and it wouldn't be rational to create a, a regime of equality. Uh, at least it wouldn't be rational from the way that liberals talk about rationality. When we get to Marxism, it's going to be, there's a different approach. Rationality is going to mean that we're going to have certain kinds of equality of outcome. But for liberals, the two forms of equality are essentially process equality not outcome equality. And I think that's a really important thing. Equal voice, these are process equality. I'm running low on chalk. I need to get another piece of chalk. Let's see. Actually, sadly, all of my chalk is getting, uh, getting small. I'm going to have to go over to uh, PSU campus and raid a classroom. I don't know if there are, I have to figure out where the classrooms are that have chalk. Um, venture out into the howling coronavirus universe in order to find bigger pieces of chalk. Uh, the final principle of political liberalism uh, that is really essentially implied by, the, by these two particularly, um, so we're going to have a system of government and we want to make sure that it's a limited government um, and we, uh, one of the ways that that will be accomplished is by making sure that the people have a voice in what the government does. The government is not separate from it. It's of, by, and for the people. That phrase uh, you know, nicely encapsulates what it is that popular sovereignty is. But there's one other principle that's implied, which is, okay, if we're going to have a government that is run by people and is also intended to be limited and is intended to uh, be impartial and to maintain this process of quality, there's going to be a need to take the functions of government and separate them into different uh, institutions so that there can be some kind of internal system of checks. The people are the external system of checks, right? This is an external check. It's not just an external check. It's also an expression of our individual sovereignty uh, writ large into the political system. But it functions as an external check. But there is not uh, enough check there to stop the government from bursting its bounds uh, of its legitimate uh, um, limits. So we also need a separation of powers and checks and balances. And this will be the internal check. And of course, one of the things about this system of checks and balances is it's also intended to not just keep the government limited, but to maintain the rule of law. Uh, because human beings, while they are rational, um, 
they do have a tendency to be partial towards themselves and their family and their, you know, people who benefit them. Uh, so the rule of law is but far from being self-enforcing. Rights are not uh, self-enforcing. Impartiality is definitely not self-enforcing. Uh, people, because they are different, uh, because uh, this equality is conceptual and process-oriented, but in reality people are actually quite different and there's a lot of a lot of diversity, um, there will be real-world tendencies to move away from adhering to these process values. So the separation of powers is essential to maintaining these uh, other things. So this is, this is really uh, an instrumental aspect of this. It's a tool. So the separation of powers is a tool. Why is it part of the system? It, this all refers back to the rationality. It, within political liberalism, we have to always refer back to the rational individual and all of the features of a political liberal or a liberal political system are going to have to adhere to some universal concept of rationality and mostly instrumental rationality. Rationality as a tool for reaching the ends, figuring out the best means to the ends. There's also that more philosophical form of rationality that I referred to, uh, which is the ability to rationally sort of uh, decide on our own concept of the good. That's a different kind of rationality than instrumental rationality. Instrumental rationality is a tool, and we use that tool to figure out, okay, we have our ends, and our ends are the rule of law, limited government, uh, maintenance of, of legal and political equality. Uh, how do we do that? Like, both of these are actually uh, the idea behind both of these is that they are uh, make sure that we manifest these other values. It's rational to make sure that the people uh, people have a voice. It's rational to make sure there's a separate a separation of powers. And um, history does demonstrate the danger of uh, of eroding these uh, boundaries between the different functions of government. Now, the classic separation of powers is executive, legislative, and judicial. Uh, that's not the only way to divide things up, um, but it actually, it's, it, it's a very sensible one, and one of the reasons why it's the dominant model is that uh, it does seem like the actions of the government boil down to three separate functions that are obviously interrelated, right? There's no, nothing to judge unless there's a law, and there's nothing to judge unless there's an enforcement of that law. So uh, the, uh, they, they, they work together. They can't be completely separated from each other. But the idea being that, okay, this is a sensible, rational way to divide up the sovereignty of the, of the government. Um, and it, when we do put different people in different positions, we're going to find that it's going to be a better check. It's going to create a, a, a system that's going to make sure that we have the rule of law and that we have limited government and that our, our forms of process equality are maintained. So we're, I'm not going to get into this in this class, but there, this, these things take us down the road of democratic theory. Democratic theory is an important sort of subfield of political liberalism, and part of the reason why I don't cover democratic theory in much depth in this class is, one, it would just take too long, uh, and we have other things to cover, but two, there is a whole class in democratic theory, and I think I'm teaching it next year. Uh, I taught it last year, and I'm not really sure, but it's, it's coming up, and hopefully I'll actually be able to, to teach it, not to a camera, but to a group of live people. But democratic theory is a really important kind of side field of uh, political liberalism. So I'll, I'll just point this out, right? We have democratic theory. And democratic theory is oriented towards essentially operationalizing these two principles. 
uh, turning these concepts, which are key to uh, liberal political order, into a set of institutions, roles, rules, political practices uh, that will ensure these other fundamental principles of political liberalism are adhered to. And obviously, this is not just kind of a side activity, because if political liberalism is going to be anything more than just a set of ideas up in the clouds, if it's actually going to land in the real world, it's going to have to be operationalized uh, in a way that gets us uh, a system that is as closely adhering to these values as possible. Uh, I will say that, that uh, Democratic Theory 1 is very complex, but also there are a, a lot of different ways of manifesting these two values into an actual system. There are many, many kinds of constitutions and political orders that will uh, adhere to the requirements of political liberalism. Just like there are a variety of different conceptions of the good that individuals can decide to pursue, there are a variety of different uh, styles of a liberal democratic government that will work. And none of them is perfect. All of them have trade-offs, right? The more you uh, um, like create a system that, that has, separates powers and makes sure that those separate powers check each other, the harder it is to exercise that popular sovereignty. Um, so these two values, while they're both, these two principles, while they're both really important to making sure these other principles are adhered to, uh, and we can't have essentially a liberal political order without both of these things, there's, in some ways, there's friction between the two of them. There's a, there's, there are trade-offs. The more we want the people to rule themselves, the less we're going to have checks, and it's going to become a little more dangerous. The more checks we have, the harder it is for the people to actually have what they want expressed in the laws and the actions of the government. So that's just to note that within political liberalism, there's going to be, we've already, I've already you know, seen, we've already talked about, or I've already talked about, all the different controversies that happen within uh, liberalism, even, you know, even just to the definition of what is liberty, back to the uh, which liberty uh, lecture, there, there are all kinds of ways in which people can agree on the fundamentals of uh, a, uh, what uh, liberty is and still disagree on the answers to specific questions and on those trade-offs between positive and negative liberty. The same thing is true in political liberalism. Now, I haven't even touched or gotten to human rights, so, uh, but one of the things that has to happen and it, it is kind of part of democratic theory, but it's really, it's, it's, it's more central to and cannot be brushed aside uh, into a separate course. Uh, what are those rights? If we're rights-holding individuals, what are those rights? And it's not enough to simply say life, liberty, and property, or life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or rights and liberties, which is what, how Rawls uh, refers to it in his kind of very abstract way. The, those abstractions are, are useful to generate consent of the governed to figure out how we will rationally do that. But once we're actually now uh, down that road, where we say, okay, we see how to, how to create a legitimate government. We see that it leads to uh, legal equality and limited government. But, okay, well, what are, if, if rights are so central, what are those rights? Um, and I've given you two uh, readings for today, one of which is, I'll show you, the Declaration of the Rights of Man, where uh, the uh, National Assembly of France, after having a liberal revolution, uh, a much more violent and uh, tumultuous and transformative revolution than the American uh, 
version of the liberal revolution. But the much like the uh, founders had to write a constitution, and then uh, the first generation of political uh, uh, elected officials had to write a bill of rights. The at the very beginning there was a need to specify what those rights are. So we have our Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Rights of Man, which was written in 1789, the same year the Bill of Rights was written, addressed that, that difficult question of what are these rights that we have? Um, and there are uh, essentially two kinds of rights that, that get involved uh, or that get, that get uh, um, uh, articulated when we take that step of going from the abstraction of life, liberty, and property, or life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness to, okay, well, well what are those particular rights? Um, I'm going to have to erase here. So I'm going to give the board a second to be seen, and then I'm going to erase these principles. Moving to board number two. Could be a three-board day today. The way that liberals have tended to approach the task of creating rights is uh, that there are individual rights that really just are good for you as a person. They, they are things that you can use to pursue whatever conception of the good you're pursuing. Um, so there are what we might think of as personal rights. And those personal rights really apply to your relations with anybody or any entity, right? Not just the government, but other individuals, society, subgroups, your family, whatever it happens to be. Um, and the lists of what the personal rights are vary slightly, but they basically are things like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, uh, uh, right to privacy, uh, the Declaration of Rights of Man specifies these rights a little differently than uh, the Bill of Rights does, and the 50 states all have Bills of Rights that specify personal rights that, that vary. But basically, personal rights uh, are all about making sure that you can live your life the way you want to. And we can really just think of this as a way of fleshing out what it is that liberty really means, right? Um, so this, the, these personal rights are fully oriented towards giving people the chance to decide how to live their lives, decide what their conception of the good is, and decide what actions are going to move them towards that. There's also always this notion, whether it's explicit or implicit, that um, everybody has to have the same set of personal rights, and your personal rights end where somebody else's personal rights begin. So there's a, there's a harm principle aspect. The way that um, the Declaration of Rights of Man puts it is, liberty consists in the freedom to do everything which injures no one else. Hence, the exercise of the natural rights of each man has no limits except those which assure to the other members of the society the enjoyment of the same rights. Now, these limits can only be determined by law. This is actually, I like that this is specified. This is not put into other bills of rights necessarily. The uh, Declaration of Rights of Man has a lot of, it, there, there's a lot of sort of philosophical savvy uh, in it as opposed to just being a legal document. These limits can only be determined by law. That's a way of saying that 
we can specify our personal rights, but what we then have to do, which we know we've already uh, covered with uh, other thinkers, is create a government that specifies those laws. And what that does is that now creates a new entity which is threatening to our rights. In the state of nature, other individuals are a threat to our rights. Um, and other associations that arise within the, within the state of nature are threats to our rights. When you create a government, you create a new threat, even at the same time that you create a protector. Uh, and that is actually one of the sort of the built-in, uh, maybe, paradoxes of political liberalism. I don't know if paradox, maybe paradox is a little too strong, but it certainly creates a conflict. So, there are, our rights are already vulnerable, uh, and they're not self-enforcing, so we have to create an entity to enforce them, but the government then now becomes a guarantor of our rights, but also a really big threat to our rights. Um, just, you know, think about your relationship to the police. You know, uh, all of you have, whether you've elaborated it for yourselves explicitly or not, you all have a kind of a feeling about what um, the, uh, uh, how, how you relate to the police. Oh, my, my light just went out. Uh, I'm going to check to make sure I'm still recording. Still recording? i got to, let's see, oh, there we go. Get some more lights in here. One of the things about doing this remote instruction is that there's a kind of a technological infrastructure. There's just battery power sometimes, so uh, that, that we have to deal with. So there's that. Um, but you you have you have a relationship with the police. Do you see the police fundamentally as protecting you or as a threat to you? Um, and the thing is, is that in the in the real world, police are both of those things. Um, to certain people, they are more of a protector than a threat. To other people, they're more of a threat than a protector. But both of those sides of the police are true, and that is the uh, that 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 is one of the problems within political liberalism is that we create this entity to protect our rights, and now it has so much power that it actually becomes a tremendous threat to our rights. And so the other type of human rights that we have are not personal rights. These are um, uh, essentially uh, civil rights, which protect us from the government. So protections from the government. And in our Bill of Rights, we essentially have two categories of uh, we have both of these categories of rights, and they're kind of nicely divided evenly. The First Amendment is the heart and soul of our personal rights. The Second Amendment uh, is also, it could have easily been rolled into the First Amendment. Um, uh, you have the right to uh, bear arms, the right to freedom of uh, speech, the right to freedom of press, freedom of religion. They are all related to each other. Um, the Third Amendment, which is the right uh, to not have soldiers quartered, is starting to lean in this direction already, right? It's starting to say, oh, the government is a threat to our, to our households because the government could to decide to put the military in our homes. The Fourth Amendment, which uh, creates a warrant requirement um, and uh, uh, says that the government has to have probable cause to search and seize, we're now fully in the protections from the government uh, domain. And the Fifth, Sixth, Seventh, and Eighth Amendments all specify particular limits on what the government uh, can do. So, so protections from the government come in two forms. Limits to government action. Right? You can't 
have your home, houses, uh, papers, and persons seized or searched without a warrant. So there's a prohibition there. And then there are also required procedures. And actually the Fourth Amendment has both. It mixes both of these. Uh, you have uh, a right to sort of have privacy and security of your uh, house's person's papers and effects, but there's also then a procedure that's required in order to be able to breach that limit. Uh, and we need that limit breached. Like we want to be pri we want to have uh, a privacy of our person, house, papers, and effects, our essentially our personal stuff. And that actually is kind of part of our personal rights. The Fourth Amendment has a little bit of this mixed into it as well. But we know that if the government is going to effectively protect our rights, that it has to sometimes search people's houses. It has to sometimes seize evidence. It has to sometimes arrest people and, and, and put them on trial and put them in jail. If it can't do those things, then it's not going to effectively uh, protect our rights. So the, this is exactly where, and the Fourth Amendment is sort of the perfect flexion point, where the government is both a protector and a threat. It's a threat because it could invade, invade our domain of privacy. It's a protector because uh, it, uh, <clears throat> it will maintain that boundary, but only by, uh, for some people, breaching that particular boundary. So instead of just saying, well, okay, breach away, right, because we need our rights protected, uh, these protections from the government say, okay, you're a, you're a protector from us, and we need you to do your job. But you, in doing your job, are potentially a huge threat. And uh, you, you need to be limited in what you do, and there need to be certain required procedures. Most of these uh, required procedures are criminal justice rights. Both the Bill of Rights, which is heavy on these, and the Declaration of the Rights of Man specifies certain uh, um, uh, criminal justice rights. The law shall provide for such punishments only as are strictly and obviously necessary, and no one shall suffer punishment except it be legally inflicted in virtue of a law passed and promulgated before the commission of the offense. So, you can, so no ex post facto laws. Um, as all persons are held innocent until they shall have been declared guilty, if arrest shall be deemed indispensable, blah, blah, blah. Um, there's all kinds of, and actually the, the Declaration of the Rights of Man is less specific about our criminal justice rights than our Bill of Rights is. Um, but uh, then the next one is, no one shall be disquieted on account of his opinions, including religious views. This is personal rights. In the Declaration of the Rights of Man, these two categories are a little more mixed. In the U.S. Bill of Rights, they're a little bit sort of more cleanly divided. Though, as I say, the Fourth Amendment kind of is, is where they overlap. But it, the important thing about human rights is that they express our individual sovereignty. That's what these personal rights are all about. And they express the fact that the government, which is intended to protect our rights, is now a threat in addition to a protector. Uh, so any list of rights is going to take into account two really important things, right? What is it, what do we need in order to live life the way we want to live it, right? What are the, those things. And that list is pretty, that, that's not a very complicated list, right? It's liberty of, of thought, speech, uh, action, so long as it doesn't harm other people, uh, any kind of uh, freedom of conscience. Um, does, is the right to own uh, a gun a necessary one? Again, that's kind of a personal right, but also it's a protection from government. That's part of, part of what 
the idea is, is that when you can have firearms, you are protected against the tyrannical government. Whether that, whether firearms are actually going to protect you against the 21st century government is, is, is a great question, but that's part of what the intention is. But this is a pretty easy uh, list of things, right? Freedom of conscience, opinion, speech, and action as long as it doesn't harm other people. Religion is included in there as an important dimension. Like, what, what specific pieces of freedom of action are necessary? Uh, what what it, it exactly does it mean to have freedom of conscience? There can be some, some sort of slight disagreements on details in there, but this is a pretty well-established domain of what our human rights are. Um, the protections from the government are more uh, specific because these represent an analysis of the threat that the government presents to us. Okay, so what in what ways is the government a potential threat? That's the main question that's being asked, which is going to develop these lists. And one of the reasons why criminal justice rights are so heavily uh, part of our Bill of Rights, the Declaration of the Rights of Man, any specification of what our human rights are, is because it is in the form of the criminal justice system that the government is the most threatening. It's where we as individuals, in our very most sort of naked weakness, come up against the, the majesty and power of the police, the courts, the prisons, all of the things that the government can bring to bear against an individual suspect, right? Um, <clears throat> and uh, so that is, the criminal justice system is really kind of the most terrifying aspect, terrifying as in like frightening, but also terrifying as in like the ability to uh, um, sort of have, wield this, this gigantic power over individuals. So specifying criminal justice rights really makes an awful lot of sense. And in fact, our founding generation, they were very much one of the reasons why our Bill of Rights is so heavy on uh, criminal justice rights. Um, the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 8th Amendments are all about criminal justice rights, and they're long, right? The 5th Amendment is the longest uh, amendment in the Bill of Rights uh, because it really is like, okay, here are the things that you need uh, in order to be able to come up against the government. And part of what the idea of these criminal justice rights is, is in order to have there be an equal fight, right? Like the government says, you're guilty, or we think you're guilty, and you say, but I'm not guilty, that, that's going to be a battle. And if we're going to maintain legal equality, uh, that battle is, since that battle is so unequal, as an individual, you don't have nearly the resources. Even a super rich person doesn't have the, the, the resources that uh, the, the government can bring to bear on uh, a criminal investigation and a trial. Um, uh, they, there are certain things you need to have in your possession, certain, certain procedures that have to be guaranteed to you to create some kind of rough equality in that very uh, problematic relationship. Because one of, and also one of the things is, is that in a uh, liberal society, we get to rule ourselves, um, but we also, part of our sovereignty is having to live the consequences of the choices that we make, right? So if I'm pursuing uh, happiness, and I make mistakes that actually make me unhappy, I have to live with the consequences of that. That's part of what it means to respect uh, an individual's sovereignty, is that we not only respect the choices they make, we make sure that they get to slash have to live out the consequences of their choices. The criminal justice system is a problematic entity because uh, it's one, it, it's what helps to make sure that people are, don't have the rights transgressed by others, but also if I get 
um, punished for something I didn't do, then I'm actually living out the consequences that I don't deserve. So the criminal justice system is, is a place where we could potentially accidentally, or you know, in the case of the, uh, an abuse of power, intentionally um, undercut the fundamental purpose of a liberal society, which is to protect that sovereignty of the individual. If you have to suffer consequences for actions that you didn't take, then that is a betrayal of your, of your individual sovereignty. And every time that happens, that is a ding in the integrity of the liberal political order. Uh, which is one of the reasons why you know, uh, some of the uh, early thinkers in this, and I forget who's, which one of the founding generation said this, I ought to know this, but um, I would rather see uh, a thousand guilty people go free than one innocent person jailed. Now, that's a particular uh, stance on how we should balance government as guarantor of our rights and government as threat to our rights uh, that is pretty extreme because when a thousand people who are guilty go free, that erodes the protection of our rights. You know, if, if I'm victimized by somebody and my rights are violated um, and, and the person who did that doesn't get punished, then the government isn't really doing its job to protect my rights. So there, there, ha there, there has to be a balance, and that particular statement is you know, one pretty strong way of saying we need to make sure that we protect people uh, in the criminal justice system so strongly that it's virtually impossible for an innocent person to go to jail. Uh, in reality, we might say, well, then what that's doing is a lot of, you know, no innocent people go to jail, but a lot of innocent people are victimized by malefactors who, who violate their rights with impunity. That's not, a, that, that's not a win, that's a loss. So how do we balance uh, innocent people going to jail against innocent people being victimized uh, by rights violators? So this particular balance is always going to be one of the most contentious pieces of a political order that's built on uh, liberal ideas. And you know, we, we don't really have the criminal justice debate so strongly in our society right now. When I first started teaching in the 90s, it was a really big thing, and crime, the crime rates were really high, and uh, governments were uh, proposing means of cracking down on, on that to protect innocent people's rights more, but then it became concerning to civil libertarians that maybe it was going too far. We had a similar debate uh, in, in American society uh, after 9-11 and the passage of the Patriot Act, which seemed really necessary, like, protect us, protect us. If you don't protect us from terrorists, you're not doing your job. But then it was like, oh, but wait a minute, the consequences of you protecting us really a lot are that we're now vulnerable to a different threat, right? We're threatened by criminals, we're threatened by terrorists, we're threatened by corporate power, we're threatened by, uh, you know, people who will manipulate and influence us. That we want protection from all those uh, problems, from all those threats to our rights, from the government. And then the government itself is a threat uh, to our rights as well. So striking that balance is part of what uh, liberal political order is all about. That's one of the reasons why popular sovereignty is so important, is that if there's going to be a balance between government as protector of our rights and government as threat to our rights, the people who are subject to that order should have a say in how that order goes down. It's much like if there's going to be a harm principle line, if there's going to be a law that says this is harmful to others and this is not harmful to others, that, and that, that line is going to affect everybody's individual sovereignty uh, because it's going to take certain actions and say these are not permissible and it's going to take other actions and say they are permissible, it makes a lot of sense to give the people who are subject to that distinction a say in where that line goes. Um, <clears throat> the same thing is, is true for uh, 
the sort of balance between government as protector of rights and government as uh, threat to our rights. Our criminal justice rights are a way of specifying not what that balance is so much as what are some of the specific terms about how we're going to fight uh, about where that exact line goes. Because no Bill of Rights is going to be so specific that it's going to set a boundary that is timeless. It's setting a principle that is going to allow a line to be set, and then it's going to allow for that line to be argued over, should we move it this direction, should we move it this direction. Uh, and that is part of what a why democracy goes so well with uh, the liberal political philosophy, is that when that line moves, it's going to be a result of an internal debate among the very people uh, who are subject to that. Now, getting back to what I said earlier about democratic theory, um, the idea of democratic theory is to create a system where we have really the best chance of making those adjustments and answering these uh, uh, questions that always get raised by any uh, um, liberal society, any liberty-loving society. Where does that harm principle line go? It, we want to create institutions and roles and rules and practices that make it most likely that where that line is, is actually an expression of what the people want and not the expression of what some small group, subgroup of the people want. Um, so human rights are, you know, they're not self-enforcing, they're not self-specifying, um, and there's, there's two sides to them. There's the, you know, what you as an individual person have so you can be sovereign, and what you as a person need to protect you from this brand new threat to uh, your uh, sovereignty, which is the government. Um, there's another issue that's a, that, that arises in uh, political liberalism that is not always central to the political liberal discourse. What I've covered so far in the Locke, the Rawls, and now the uh, human rights talk is, uh, is, is sort of the main line, the central question. There's a, a final question that I want to get to, and I'm going to erase the board, uh, <clears throat> show that. I'm going to leave that up there because that's, of course, still central, the rational sovereign rights holding individual. Um, this is where the uh, Wollstonecraft reading kicks in, right? I mean, I, one, I wanted to give you that reading to show that, okay, women's rights and human rights are part of the same discourse, right? Uh, that um, if we're going to be talking about human rights, there, there's uh, originally the adherents or advocates of human rights were, they were men's rights. And so I just wanted to have you, uh, give you a chance to read an early feminist thinker who said, no, 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 human rights are human rights, not man's rights. Um, but there's a, a, a really central uh, theme in the vindication of the rights of women that is important, though it's always been kind of just a little on the side of the liberal political discourse, and that is about cultivating the necessary traits to be a rational, sovereign, rights-holding individual. Um, and Part of what Wollstonecraft is pointing out is that the way our society has functioned, it has assumed that women cannot have the traits that are necessary to be this kind of being that is the starting point and the central focus and the uh, end-all be-all of uh, political liberalism, that women aren't capable of being inside of this uh, arena. Either because... Sorry, I'm not sure how to help with that. 
<laughs> That's kind of hilarious that uh, the Google was just like, oh, I can't help with how to address that women Okay, that's, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, not, I'm not gonna read too terribly much into the fact that my uh, Google Home here in the dining room just chimed in. Uh, it was a little scary because uh, I ex expect no response from the room. Uh, but her, her argument is that women are perfectly capable of being these kinds of beings uh, and that what, is, what society has done by not assuming that women are is created this discourse where women have different traits cultivated that actually put them in a different uh, domain and that society has assumed that men are like this uh, and that men just naturally occupy this but what's really happening is that men are being trained and cultivated to be rational sovereign rights holding individuals women are being trained and cultivated to be uh, emotional subservient romantic weak uh, uh, you know uh, dependent individuals um, and that uh, the only reason why we have these two gendered categories is because the cultivation of traits is uh, societal effort. It's not a natural or organic thing. It's assumed. What keeps women in their place is this uh, claim, this assumption, and then this set of uh, uh, um, societal practices that creates two tracks. It creates the male track where you're on track to be this, and it creates the female track where you're on track to be something else. And then when we look at women and men as they exist in the world, men can say, see, you, you're, you're not the kind of being that, that is, one, the right kind, <laughs> and two, you're not the kind of being that can fully participate in a political order built around rational, sovereign, rights-holding individuals. Um, you, are, you, don't, you don't get taken into account in this. Uh, Wollstonecraft is, you know, saying of, that's, you know, of course women should have the same rights that men have, um, but more than that, and this is the, this is, I think, the important uh, point besides just pointing out uh, that assuming that women and men are belong in different categories is, is sexist, pointing out that what a liberal society needs to function to get these things is a liberal society needs practices and institutions and uh, um, procedures that are going to actually cultivate these traits in people. So cultivating these traits requires practices, institutions, and certain attitudes. Right? For one, the attitude, I'll sort of start down here, the attitude that's necessary is that this is possible at all, right? Part of what liberalism is, is an identification of human potentiality and then taking that potential human and putting it at the center of our political thought. But this is a human potentiality. This is not a claim about what people are like. Because clearly, the counterclaim that we are irrational, emotional, driven by urges and instincts, uh, that we are not sovereign, we, we do not rule ourselves, that we're ruled by others, that our families, our culture, our personal experiences have way more impact on how we conceive of our uh, con uh, conception of the good, how we make decisions. Um, clearly, historically, we're not rights holding, and m many people, you know, if you, if you did a historical survey, if you somehow could go on a time machine and ask every human being who's ever, ex who's ever lived, like, 
do you feel like uh, being that that is the uh, holder of rights, the rights to life, liberty, and property, whatever it is, the vast majority of human beings would just look at you and be like, I don't even know what the hell you're talking about. That doesn't even make any sense. Uh, and to see yourself as an individual, well, there are definitely ways in which we're clearly individuals. Our bodies are separate, our minds are separate, we can't read each other's minds, we don't overlap in that way, but we are clearly social beings in so many important ways, uh, including our most personal possession, our inner monologue, which is conducted usually in a language that is a societal production and a cultural production that, that precedes uh, by many generations our own actual existence on Earth. So when we look at this thing and we think of it critically, it's, it's a joke that this is what human beings are like. So liberalism is premised upon identifying human potential, right? This is human potential. And part of what is implicitly being argued for by liberalism, all liberals, is that these traits are superior to the, to the counter traits that they are essentially intended to replace. That being a rational being is better than being an emotional being. That being sovereign is better than being dependent. That having, being rights holding is better than being uh, you know, uh, subject to the decisions of others. That uh, being an individual uh, and, and paying attention to yourself is superior to seeing yourself as a part of a greater whole. Right? Um, other political philosophies will take all of those liberal claims and will advance one or more of counterclaims that actually it's better to see ourselves not as separate individuals, but as a part of a greater whole. Um, and that when we see ourselves as individuals only, that's, I mean, we're here for a wink of an eye. And this is something that, that we will see directly in uh, Mussolini's essay on fascism, that, you know, focusing on yourself and your self-interest and on your puny little life, that's so pathetic because you're just a, you're just a flash in uh, the universe and it's, you're hardly meaningful. So Mussolini will take that particular claim of uh, liberalism that it's, that it's superior to be an individual, to think of yourself as a, a self-interested individual separate from others and not a part of a whole, but a whole unto yourself. And he'll just, he'll just flip that. So one of the things that liberalism is doing is it's saying this is, these are potential traits of human beings and they are human potential and these are the superior traits to any other claims otherwise. But if we accept both of those things, that doesn't mean we don't have work to do. If we say, oh, human beings can be rational, sovereign, rights-holding individuals. They're capable of uh, all of that. Um, and it's a good thing. There's still then, well, how do we get there? Because clearly, historically, and even not just all the way historically back, but, but even now, lots and lots of people, if not most people, display other traits. And we don't necessarily naturally grow up into this, right? We certainly don't come into the world as rational, sovereign individuals, right? We come in as perhaps as individual bodies, right? But we don't come into it as rational for sure. Sovereign, capable of ruling yourself, forget it. We might come in as rights holding, but I certainly you know bracket that off. Really, we're talking about rational, sovereign individuals. These are traits that need to be cultivated. And Wollstonecraft is pointing that out because she's doing a critique of uh, 
an early liberal society and saying that, you know, one of the reasons why you think, or maybe even the main reason why you think women can't be included in this uh, liberal political order is because they don't fit this model of human potential. But the reason they don't fit is because our society is not cultivating them to fit. So we need to just, one, have the attitude that anybody can be this, two, that these are the right traits and that if we're going to have a liberal political order, we are going to have to believe that people can be turned into this. Now, the institutions and practices, these will be the specific resources that are needed to make sure that this is what we get. Now, Wollstonecraft is writing at a time when uh, free public, public education is not a thing. It doesn't exist. Uh, and uh, their, their education exists, and people are being educated uh, to be these things, and they're being raised to be these things, but part of uh, the notion of political and legal equality is that there needs to be an equal set of resources given over to fulfilling this particular kind of human potential. So she's indicating that we have to cultivate women to be this way, and that our patriarchal society is already cultivating men to be this way, and cultivating women to be a different way, that we have dual models of human potential that are functioning in our society. But we can then glean from that that, wow, it's, it's not only true that we have to change our attitude about the genders and say, well, everybody's tracked to be here instead of one group is tracked to be here and the other group is tracked to be uh, uh, emotional, dependent, uh, and part of the, you know, part of the family. That's, you know, the, the whole model of women actually is the counter to these traits. They're emotional, they are dependent, they can't rule themselves, and they are not individuals, they are to be seen as essentially part of the family, um, not individuals in their own right. That we've got to engage in a set of practices that put everybody into this category. But that raises the question that I talked about last week when I was talking about positive liberty. Well, well what does it take, right? Um, what are the practices and institutions that will get us a society that is largely comprised of these things? Um, one of the institutions that's built early on in liberal societies is uh, uh, the institutions of free public education. Uh, that is the very first acknowledgement of what is necessary. And uh, Wollstonecraft is not alone in this time period in recognizing the need in, the li in a liberal society to not just protect people's rights and protect people against the government and against other malefactors, but to cultivate the traits needed to have a, uh, back in the late 17th, or 18th and early 19th century, the, it was, uh, the term was Republican society, um, that we needed a Republican uh, uh, culture, essentially, and, and what that meant was a culture of people who were like this, who could actually uh, um, exercise their individual sovereignty, who could engage in the public acts, voting, debating, running for office, making uh, decisions as representatives that are necessary to have the kind of uh, political order that liberalism says is the legitimate and proper one. Um, interestingly, like John Adams, he was, the, he was a big advocate for uh, cultivating the traits necessary to have a functioning Republican society, and he was a kind of a grandfather of the public school movement, which later uh, succeeded within a couple of uh, decades in the 19th century in getting our free public education system spread out throughout the entire nation. But Adams himself was deeply a sexist, and uh, his his view on what women's role was was the concept of Republican motherhood. Mothers were one of the necessary institutions 
in cultivating this kind of individuals in their sons. And mothers were necessary for cultivating the cultivator attitude in women so that they would be raising daughters who would then be the next generation of Republican mothers who would raise the next generation of rational sovereign individual men. So uh, Adams had, he had, uh, you know, an insight that a lot of the founding generation and early liberals of, of all uh, areas didn't have, which is that we have to cultivate these traits. They don't just happen automatically. And it's going to take societal action. It's going to take resources set aside, um, and it's going to take public uh, um, uh, providing of those resources. But he accepted the basic patriarchal society that the, this was not human potential, this was male potential. And Wollstonecraft is writing in the very same time that, that Adams is alive, and she's actually uh, you know, providing an argument against that and just saying, yeah, it looks to you like women are emotional and dependent and uh, you know, destined for a role as helpers instead of as uh, separate individuals. But that's really just because that's how, uh, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's how society has always cultivated women. Um, when we look at the world, we see uh, a set of people who are not just who they were born to be, they are cultivated by the societal practices, the cultural expectations, uh, um, the experiences that arise in a society that has certain kinds of expectations. So we can reframe that. Um, and I, you know, I have to say, I, I love Adams' insight that we have to cultivate traits. He was really pretty much, he was on the cutting edge of a new generation of liberal discourse, which is liberalism itself is not self-enforcing. It's not self-producing. It, it, these tr superior traits, don't just automatically happen. They're there in us. They can be brought out, but they don't just automatically happen. Um, and Wollstonecraft pointed out that uh, this, can, this can be done across the gender uh, divide. There really is no gender divide except a divide that we have created for ourselves. Um, so the idea that a liberal political order has to have certain features um, and that uh, those features, which all emanate from this being, right? I've, I hope I've already done a sufficient job of tracing the liberal argument that this is the starting point, and then we get all those principles that I had on the board uh, earlier in the lecture. Uh, but that then when, we, when we're finished with that whole list, and we say, okay, we've got our human rights specified, uh, we see what, how, how certain rights are needed for individuals to live life the way they want to, certain rights are needed to protect uh, people against this brand new threat that they've created by creating a government, um, but that once we're done with the architecture of uh, the political order, and we have our principles, and we're, we're setting democratic theory on the task of figuring out how we can operationalize those principles so that we actually adhere to them as closely as possible, there's still one more thing that needs to be done, and that is to make sure that we actually are producing the kinds of individuals that this entire system is centered around, and that is the starting point for it. And we have to acknowledge that this is not just the way people come into the world, and it's not automatic that that's what we're going to be like. Um, a uh, a uh, gender-neutral society is not going to just happen uh, over time. It's going to have to be that women and men are cultivated in the same ways. And that's actually because this is a... This is a not just an abstract task of starting from a, a tabula rasa, this is a historical task, there's going to have to be an overcoming. We're going to have to change. We're going to have to add new institutions and practices, and we're going to have to change attitudes. And Wollstonecraft is making an argument, not only that cultivation is important, but that we have to and should 
change our attitude. And in later liberal thinkers, really this is more of a 20th century, even into the 21st century kind of uh, uh, discussion about this, is an acknowledgement that when you have a sexist society, you're actually throwing away half of your human capital. Um, you are uh, ignoring the potential of half of your population. Um, and what that does is that actually creates a less effective, less efficient, less productive society, economy, government system. Uh, when you leave out half of the potential of your population, you are far from being an effective political order. So it, it's actually kind of uh, not just fair to men and women, it's a necessity for society as a whole. Okay, well, that's our week on political liberalism. Uh, next week we're going to look at economic liberalism, which will overlap in certain ways, and certainly the rational sovereign rights-holding individual is again going to be a central character, but there's going to be a, a different emphasis and a different story being told, and we're going to be moving to a different part of the family tree uh, of uh, the liberal uh, family of ideas. So, until next week, just... Keep staying the way uh, is, I don't know, healthy, sane, all the stuff. All right. Have a great weekend. Bye.